Along the topic of prayer, how many of you find yourselves praying, if it, is the God, if it is the Lord's will, if it is God's will, answer my prayer? And that's a good thing, and I think it's largely tied to the first part of this passage. In this passage, we have uh, two calls to admonition. The first is, come now, you who say. And then the second one is chapter 5 and verse 1, come now, you rich. And some people would see a connection between 4.13 all the way down to chapter 5, verse 12. But the reason that we're going to address 7 through 12 next week is because the focus shifts from those who are being condemned to those who are receiving oppression or suffering and their proper response. So this week we're going to look at just 4.13 to 17 and then 5.1 to 6. We look here at these verses, though, and we say we ought to have an awareness of God's will. But those in this passage whom James described do not seem to have that awareness or at least to acknowledge it. We will go to such and such city today or tomorrow and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. And we notice that they are not condemned specifically for the making of plans. It is not wrong to do business. It is not wrong to make a profit. It is not wrong necessarily to go from one place to the other. The thing that is being condemned is what is said in verse 14. Because of the uncertainty of life, we ought not to presume upon the future. We are not God. We do not know the future. We cannot dictate what tomorrow will be, let alone a year from now. And so as a result, if we make plans without any acknowledging of the fact that God can change those plans, we are characterized by a kind of pride, a kind of arrogance. That being said, sometimes our well-intentioned uh, goal of avoiding the error that's condemned in this passage leads us to be somewhat tentative when we come before God. So how can we come before God in a way that both acknowledges God's sovereignty and his ability to change our plans, but is also confident that God hears and answers our prayers? And I think the answer is that we have to keep several biblical truths in proper balance in our minds. Um, I don't know how many of you have read Ian e. Bounds uh, on prayer. He has some good things to say. He also... Um, and it could just be the way that I read him a number of years ago, but he also comes across at times as basically you can sort of twist God's arm to get what you want if you just say those certain things in the right way over and over again. Certainly that's not the way we want to approach God in prayer, right? We don't want to say, if I just get the words right or repeat it enough or be worked up enough about it, God's going to do exactly the thing that I want. But sometimes again we we see something like that and it makes us want to back away this way and and we become very tentative in the way that we come before God in the making of plans and I think the wisdom of Ecclesiastes and the wisdom that James would admonish us to in this passage is to recognize life is uncertain been reminded over the, about that in the last year I had a particular set of plans and goals and ideas about what at least I would do, what I hoped for our church to accomplish in the first year of being here. 
And God obviously changed those plans, not to say that he hasn't worked among us in the last year. He certainly has. But just the things that I had outlined in my mind in terms of I'm going to preach through this or we're going to do this event or this activity or all these sorts of things, those things didn't come to place. So then recognizing that that's often how life goes, how do we approach life? We approach life in this way. I know that certain things are God's will, and I can be extraordinarily confident when I pray those things before God. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you run away from, abstain from immorality. So I can come before God and boldly, confidently say, Lord, protect me from the sin of immorality because you've said it's your will that I not live in that way. Okay? So I can confidently pray that. The degree to which I move away from clear commands or principles is the degree to which I need to be more tentative in what I pray before God. So, biblical principle. You need to support your family. Paul condemns those in 1 Timothy 5 who don't support their family, particularly uh, their widowed mother, presumably, and they say, he says, if you don't take care of your own family, you're worse than unbelievers because even they have a sense of that responsibility. So someone might then say, you know what? The best way to take care of my mother who is widowed is for me to embark in business in another city. But the specifics of what that looks like is the part about which we have to be more tentative. Not the principle of providing for my family, but the how. There's a variety of realities that factor into this. You might get to that city and realize the business that you had planned to start there, the market's already saturated with that. Or that everybody is doing well, and before the year is up, there's some sort of shift, and things are not going the way that you had planned. Those are the things that are beyond our control that we need to be more tentative about and trust God about. The principle, we uphold. But the principle can be something that we fulfill right where we're living. It can be something that we fulfill in a city far from here. It can be something that we fulfill on the other side of the world. That's the part that's up in the air and in question. And when we fail to recognize that those things are in God's hands and not ours, that's where we get ourselves into trouble. Why should we be aware of the uncertainty of life. Life is short. Life is unpredictable because we don't know the future, is the first half of verse 14. And then life is short. So the goal of the decisions that we make ought to be to be as lined as much as possible with what is pleasing to God, to make wise decisions, recognizing that God can overrule those. Verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. How do we know God's will? We were talking about it just a moment ago. There's biblical principles, like if someone doesn't take care of his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. There are clear biblical commands, like the ones in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 3. There are biblical examples, both good and bad. For example, we have the life of Jesus himself, which is the greatest example for us, as long as we recognize that there were certain things that he did because he was coming as a Savior, as the certain things that he did that we can follow in his footsteps. 
negative example would be someone like Judas, who betrayed Christ. And we can learn about the, um, the shame and the guilt that comes with betraying someone in the way that he did. We can be reminded of God's sovereign purpose in turning that to the end that he desires, despite the betrayal of Judas. There's a variety of lessons we can learn, both positive and negative, from his life. But in terms of how we make the decisions in determining God's will, Examples are below principles, are below clear commands. And all of that is said in the context of recognizing who was this command originally given to? What is this, are the specific parameters of this principle? And not trying to read more than the text points out to us about the life of someone when we're considering examples. We've talked about this before. But it is possible to make decisions in our Christian lives uh, based on some bad approaches. One would be if God gives me a sign. Um, I think I've told you guys this story. I know I told it to the, the kids in the class the other day. Um, I went to a homeschool convention when I was 12 or 13 guy got up to speak, and somewhere in there he was talking about just the course of his life. And he said, you know how I, how I met my wife? I told God that the next woman that walked through the cafeteria door was the girl I was going to marry. Anybody see some potential concerns with that? She could be already married. She could be your grandmother. You know, I mean, there, there's a variety of possibilities of why that's a foolish way to determine God's will. Signs could be easily misinterpreted, and signs, in the connection with the story of Gideon, where it's pro probably the best-known example of a sign, or, were an indication of lack of faith, not confidence in doing what God wanted. More importantly, we have God's completed word. We don't need signs to direct us in our daily lives. So there's signs. There is the idea of circumstances. The danger of circumstances is either misinterpreting them or trying to make them say more than they should, which are those two ideas are kind of closely related. So, for example, you say, in the context of a passage like this, I'm going to go to this specific city and start this specific business. And then for some reason... Uh, you can't get a business license, you can't find a building to rent, to work out of, and you need those things for the business to be successful. What is that circumstance saying? It's not saying, never try any business ever again. It's simply saying, not this business at this time in this place. So we need to be careful not to overread circumstances and to see that as like down the line from starting with what God has commanded and principles and examples and so forth. Another potential bad approach to decision-making is to be driven primarily by our feelings toward the decision. Sometimes people will speak of having a sense of peace about something. God gave me peace about whatever. The danger of this is that sometimes we don't want to do what's right, so we don't feel peace about it. If God says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, and your parents just said, clean your room, and you don't feel like cleaning your room, you're not going to have peace when you clean your room, but it's the right thing to do. If 
you really want to eat the whole pizza and the whole tub of ice cream and everything in the fridge, it might make you feel good to do that, but it's not the right thing to do because God would call that gluttony, right? So just having a particular feeling toward the decision doesn't mean that it's right or wrong. We have to start with what God has said. We look at principle, with commands, principles, and examples. We pray, seeking God's will. I think that's the attitude of verse 15. If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. We seek godly counsel because that's part of why God has put us together in the church, all different sorts of ages, so that it's not just we're all peers with one another, but there are those who are older, there are those who are younger. We can all learn together from each other. And then we recognize that we may arrive at several legitimate possibilities. And then in uh, the advice that Kevin DeYoung gives in the title of his book, just do something. We can say, here's three options, and we can analyze and, and plan and scheme, and which one am I going to do? Sometimes we just have to say, all right, this is what I'm going to pursue. And then sometimes God redirects us through circumstances which constrain our choices, through unexpected events that come into our lives. And we say, okay, Lord, this is what I recognized when I went into this. If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Why does James condemn those who don't have that attitude in verse 14 or verse 15? As it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Notice the pride that is evident in the statement of verse 13. Today or tomorrow, we will do this, and we will do this, and we will do this, and we will do this. A very self-centered focus that doesn't acknowledge God and does not recognize that God's in charge and I'm not. And so James condemns that sort of arrogance. We have to ask ourselves, who is it that he's condemning? Is he condemning unbelievers? Is he condemning believers? Or is it kind of left vague? I think the consensus among commentators, although there's a variety of opinions, would be that he is speaking here to believers. And some of the clues along those lines would be the admonition in verse 17 about if you know the right thing to do and you don't do it, it's sin. That's not really something that unbelievers are concerned about primarily. The acknowledgement that if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that is also something that an unbeliever is not going to readily acknowledge. But whether that is his original point or not, this certainly has application both to believers and to unbelievers. Anyone who says in pride, I can run the course of my life and I can determine every decision of it the way that I want is speaking in arrogance. Just a, a quick point of application along these lines. There are those who would say to us, if you check off the right boxes, you will not go through fill in the blank. Or you will positively have fill in the blank. That is a very common attitude in our society today. If you um, eat the right things, if you exercise, if you use a specific product, if you um, 
filter your water, if you this, that, or the other thing. None of those things are bad. But even in those things, we acknowledge God can take the person who was a marathon runner and eats the, the right things according to the current medical consensus every day and strike that person down with a heart attack. God can bring a variety of other circumstances into our lives that we do not anticipate, that we cannot control, that we do not have the power to fix in our strength. And when all of these things come into our lives, it doesn't mean we don't make wise decisions, but we acknowledge the truth of what it says elsewhere in Scripture which is that even wisdom cannot preserve us entirely from any disaster, from any difficulty in life, or as Bob was pointing out in his testimony, from any suffering. So as believers, if it's the making of plans, if it's a desire for our lives to go a particular way in terms of the health of our bodies or in terms of the uh, achievements of our careers or whatever else it might be, in all areas of life, acknowledge that God is the one who rules over it. And if we fail to acknowledge that, then we are boasting in pride, which is evil. Verse 17 is an interesting verse because as I was looking at this passage, I kept going back and forth. Does it go with 13 through 16 or does it lead into chapter 5, 1 through 6? And I think what I would say is, it goes with 13 to 16 that the right thing to do is to acknowledge God in all circumstances of life. But he's going to develop a specific circumstance in 5, 1 to 6 in which the evil rich do not acknowledge God's control and commands and authority over all areas of life, which has led them into their sin and which has led them to God's judgment. So we come now to chapter 5 and verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. When he says, you rich, who is he speaking about? He's probably speaking about the same people that he was talking about in chapter 2, verse 6. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Potentially also those who are the occasion of the various trials in chapter 1 and verse 2. So he's probably speaking here about and to unbelievers, and he is condemning them. It's interesting to note that when he speaks to his audience of believers in chapter 4, there's very much a tone of, you belong to God, you're not doing what God wants, repent. We come to chapter 5, and the tone is very much, judgment is falling, and there's not a whole lot you can do about it, if anything. Look what he says. Your riches have rotted, your garments have become moth-eaten, your gold and your silver have rusted. Their rust will be a witness against you and consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days you have stored up your treasure. So think about the picture he's painting here. Here are people who are... It's decaying right around them. 
And it's almost as though James is saying the decay of the object that you love, that you have heaped up for yourself, has spread to your own body, and you're decaying along with it. Which is ironic, because of all people who have a desire to preserve their natural lives, it's those who have everything this world has to offer, and who live for all this world has to offer. Because if that's the only thing that you have to live for, why would you want it to stop? You'll try to hang on to it at all costs. And James says it's like sand slipping through your fingers. It's like any car over 10 years old in Michigan when you go to work on it. It's full of rust. It's decaying. And the rust gets on you, and it's almost like it infects you in the picture that James is painting for us. You know, there's, there's, there's almost this idea you're... You're driving this thing that used to be your new car, and now it's decaying around you, and you're trapped in it, and you're decaying with it, and there's nothing that you can do about it. Their rust will be a witness against you. The things that you have loved are going to condemn you, metaphorically speaking, for having worshipped them instead of worshipping God, for having prioritized them instead of living in a way that honors God. People are like, well, gold and silver don't rust. I don't think he's saying necessarily something that's scientifically inaccurate. He's just saying, in terms of value, their value's gone. They're falling apart around you. You're hoarding these things up for yourself. And it does you no good. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Um, there was some uh, episodes of uh, Twilight Zone that I watched a few of on Netflix a while back. And one of them was about a guy who all he wanted to do was to read. And his wife was always nagging him. His co-workers were always interrupting him. Granted, he probably shouldn't have been reading at his job. But um, he, he was always getting dragged off to parties with people he didn't like instead of being able to read. And then he's in this bank vault, and this great explosion takes place, and he's the last person left on Earth, and he says, Great! I can finally read all that I've ever wanted to read. And so he goes and he gets a wheelbarrow and he fills it full of books. And there's like rubble and like smoke and fire and all of this chaos and destruction around him. And he's got his little wheelbarrow full of books and he sets it down and he sits on a step. He loses his balance and he steps on his glasses and crushes them and now he can't see anything. See, that would never to verse 4. What's God's specific contention against the rich in this passage? The pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you 
The outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, which means Lord of hosts. Uh, turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Look at verse 14 and 15 of Deuteronomy 24. You shall not oppress a hired servant who is poor and needy, whether he's one of your countrymen or one of your aliens who is in your land, in your towns. You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it so that he will not cry against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. And there's perhaps a parallel passage in Proverbs 3 that I'll read for you. says in Proverbs 3.27, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back, and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. And then although probably chronologically the book of Romans would have come well after James wrote his book, Paul says this in Romans chapter 13 verse 8. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. There's a sense of obligation for someone who is employing another person to pay the agreed-upon wages in a timely fashion and not to stretch that person out or fail to pay them what is owed in an effort to gain more profit for yourself. God is condemning the rich in this passage because there are people who deserve to be paid and they refused to give them what was owed and they were in that sense violating the spirit of the law, the admonition of Proverbs, the principles that Paul would later record in his letter and that condemned them it's interesting that it is said that the pay cries out against you They've got these wages that ought to have been given out to people who had earned them. And it's as though the money that they're, they're heaping up to be their gold, their silver, is both um, almost attacking them in verse 3, and now it's crying out and condemning them in verse 4. It's given sort of a personification. And then beyond that, not only are the, the wages that they've stored up calling out against them, but the people that they've oppressed are crying out to God for help. We have echoes in this, I think, of the Israelites when they were enslaved in Egypt, um, a number of other examples where people are being mistreated and harmed, and they cry out to God. Uh, God condemns the Israelites in the uh, prophets, both major and minor prophets, for their mistreatment of the orphan, the widow, the poor, God had this attitude that in the land of Israel, you were supposed to watch out for your fellow Israelite, whether he was rich, whether he was poor, whether he was family, whether he was not in any way connected with you, if he was from your tribe or another tribe, regardless of the circumstances, there was an obligation that you ought to love your neighbor as yourself.
which is probably part of why James condemns the attitude of favoritism in chapter 2, because he was anticipating what he's going to say in chapter 5, and he's saying, you Christians are acting like the unbelievers and doing to one another what they have done to you, and you ought not to act this way. What does he condemn in verse 5? You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put, the de put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Verse 6 probably should be taken figuratively, similar to chapter 4 and verse 2. You do lust and do not have, so you commit murder. James is looking th at this as something on a continuum from I hate my brother and I speak evilly to him to I actually carry out the sin of murder like Cain did to Abel. In the same way, if you deprive someone who's dependent on a daily wage from that daily wage, you're very likely putting him in a position of starvation. I mean, uh, a Christmas carol gets used in a variety of ways, but it's that sort of a picture. We're familiar with it, right? Scrooge heaps up this miserly wealth refuses to give Bob Cratchit what's needed, and in one vision of the future, his son dies and he's put in the poorhouse and all these other sorts of terrible things happen to him. That's the picture that James is painting for us here. Here's someone who has more than enough ability not only to pay the workers what they're owed, but also to be generous beyond that. But instead, what is the attitude of this person or these people? Verse 5. You've lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So this passage is addressed primarily to unbelievers. But by way of application for us as believers, do we become caught up in the pleasures of this life, become satisfied with them, pursue them in the way that this describes, I see people standing on the side of the road with a bunch of signs trying to get me to hand them money and I don't think that that's the wisest course of action because if someone is struggling with money, the solution is usually not giving them more money because they're probably not going to be wise with that. And as I was talking to kids the other day, why are these people standing here and, and we were talking about it, the best way to help someone in those kind of circumstances would probably be to come alongside them and it would be a long process, not something that you can do for 30 seconds on the side of the road out the car window. But it's easy for us to see something like that and sort of just get in this mindset of, I'm not going to help anybody. Everybody's out to get me. Everybody wants my stuff. It's mine and I'm going to keep it and you can't have it. We can't be that way in the church. If we see a fellow brother or sister who has needs, there is some measure of obligation to help. If that brother or sister is being foolish and that's the occasion of their need, then yes, we come alongside them and say, well, let's try to see what we can do to help you avoid this in the future. But if they're in the moment of need at that point, James 2 says, you see that and you say, I don't care. There's a disconnect between your 
profession of faith in what God wants you to do. As I said to, said to you all previously, several of you, I feel badly saying these things from the perspective of, I don't think anyone is behaving the way that this passage describes. I've seen the opposite. I've seen generosity and care and love for one another in the context of this church family, and for that I'm very grateful. The reason I think that we should not skip this passage, even though it's not a problem right now, is because the world we live in and the, the, the attitudes of the world around us and the circumstances that we encounter on a daily basis sort of squeeze our thinking and our actions and our desires. And so we need passages like this to periodically correct that so that we have the right attitude that God wants us to have toward one another and toward those outside our church body. Why should we not trust in riches? Because riches that are obtained unjustly will not bring satisfaction, they will bring condemnation, they will not bring help that we expect or hope them to give to us. They will instead bring God's judgment. Why should we not presume upon the future? Because it evidences a kind of pr pride that whether we're talking about believers at the end of chapter 4 or unbelievers at the beginning of chapter 5, both are evidencing a kind of pride that is not trusting in God, it's trusting in self, it's trusting in what I have, it's trusting in what I can do. And God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God comes alongside the poor in this world and has offered them faith. Doesn't mean that no rich people are ever saved, but that there are probably a lot more in this world who trust Christ, who don't have everything this world has to offer, than those who do. And so if either of these passages, whichever part of it God wants to press home in your heart tonight, whether it be I tend to say, here's what I'm going to do without thinking about whether it's pleasing to God or acknowledging that God has the right to change my plans, or whether it is the constant calls for me to give things to people I don't know who are possibly trying to scam me, whatever else has caused me to be hard-hearted toward any and all such needs, these passages, I think, still speak to us today and encourage us, trust in God, don't trust in riches, don't trust in yourself, because God judges the proud. But at the same time, acknowledge God in all you do, and he will direct your paths. Don't close up your heart of compassion toward those around you, because we have opportunity to show God's love, not just by our words, but also by our actions. Let's pray. Lord, these are heavy truths in these passages, and um, our daily experience is not, in some ways, much like James's audience. We're not experiencing that sort of, of oppression in chapter 5. We're not, hopefully, um, showing the kind of pride and presumption in chapter 4. But Lord, if there are seeds of those things in our hearts, we pray that you would help us to turn away from them, to consider what would be pleasing to you. Lord, help us always be willing to submit to your word in whatever way, small or large. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.